Hey gang, welcome to episode 173 of the No Persinium podcast, the voice of everything immersive. I'm Noah Nelson coming to you from No Pro headquarters in Los Angeles. This episode is brought to you by listeners like you with the support of the Johnny Carson Center for Emerging Media Arts. More on that in a moment. Um, this week on the show, we have uh, Amanda Rose Villarreal. Uh, who we met in Denver at the Denver Immersive Summit, which was just this past weekend. Um, she was on a, a panel that was myself, uh, Jenny Weinblum, who is uh, both the executive uh, producer for Meow Wolf Denver, uh, and also uh, one of the original co-founders of Leia, uh, and a friend. And we were all talking about uh, consent and agency. And Jenny and I know each other really well. Uh, the, the panel kind of came out of a conversation we were having about our respective keynotes and we're like, you know, this is something that we should maybe just do as a conversation with each other. Uh, the folks at CU Denver said, Hey, uh, Amanda Rose like has like a point of view on this. And we're like, cool. We don't know her. Um, but I guess so. And as it turns out, she's got an amazing amount of insight into the subject. And I was just blown away in the room. And I was like, you, you, I need to bring you on the podcast. So we did that. Um, more on that in a moment. And this episode, um, I guess I'll give you, I th I'm pretty sure we curse. <laughs> we definitely talk about the kink community. So uh, this is one of the ones where I put the kids away. Um, and it was recorded uh, out in the field on a very snowy day, on the first snow day uh, in Denver. And uh, that meant we were inside at a lovely, lovely cafe called uh, The Molecule Effect. And I say lovely, lovely because they have a full bar. Um <laughs> Is the exact kind of thing that like I go, why can't I have this in Los Angeles? They've got this in New York and they have it in Denver. Why not where I live? Um, and yeah, uh, a lovely venue and there was music playing on the speakers and we didn't say like, turn this music off. So hopefully no one goes and says like, oh, copyright violation. Like we don't care about them. I don't even know what's playing in this. I was like so wrapped up in the thing that... Um, you know, the, the music's just, it's in the background. Uh, it's not the focus. Hopefully that's fair use because I don't want to lose this conversation. It's, it's that good, that important. And it's one of those conversations kind of goes here, kind of goes there. All right. That's the basic setup, but you want to stick around right now for all the news we got. Cause we'll do the Patreon in a second and it's important. Patreon.com slash no proscenium. Uh, you know, I'm just going to subliminally insert that there. Um, because there is a ton of stuff that you want to know about. First off, let's again thank the folks who are uh, pitching in a bit this month uh, the Johnny Carson Center for Emerging Media Arts. They are supporting us to help them get the word out about their new faculty positions. So, uh, and here's something. Hey, uh, Amanda Rose, this is your episode, and uh, you're a grad student at CU Boulder, and, you know, uh, 
maybe you're going to be looking for uh, a teaching position somewhere. Well, I have one for you. Seeking Emerging Media Arts Professors and Pioneers, the Johnny Carson Center for Emerging Media Arts, a newly established $57 million facility and academic degree at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln, is re-envisioning the university for the 21st century and how students learn. We are looking for a pioneering faculty team to reimagine how stories are told across a continuum from live performance to immersive and interactive media, cinema arts, virtual and mixed reality, gaming, extended theater, sonic arts, <gasps> physical computing, data and art, and spatial and experience design. For more information or to apply, visit go.unl.edu slash Carson Center faculty. For questions, contact Megan Elliott, director, Johnny Carson Center for Emerging Media Arts at megan.elliott at unl.edu. And of course, the links in the show notes. And again, uh, maybe not being facetious, Amanda Rose, you should check this out. <laughs> Who knows? Maybe that's how it works. Uh, life is weird. Life is very weird. Um, and, and a nod here real quick before going on to the other announcements. Uh, the original plan was to have Carly Blair's episode air this week. Um, but this one, this one just, it's one of those ones where I was like, we we got to talk about this right now. So that's why the, the programming shift. I just want to get this one, this conversation out there with everybody. Um, okay. So let's do some announcements here. Okay. Um, I got to find them. Doo -doo -doo. Here they are. All right. Number one, we dropped this around 830 in the morning, LA time, Chained, a Victorian nightmare. Uh, this piece is going to go in LA. It is a hybrid VR and immersive theater piece. I'm losing my mind over this one uh, because of the sheer amount of talent that is going into making this. Um, so it First of all, it's from the folks at Madison Wells Media, and they're going to be doing a lot in this next year. Uh, the executive producer for Immersive over there, the guy who heads up the whole vertical, is Ethan Stearns. He is the producer of Carne y Arena, which, as you well know, is one of our favorite things, period. Not just one of our favorite VR things. Won the special Oscar, was given a special Oscar for its achievements. Um so he's running immersive over there right now, and he brought on Justin Denton, um, who was formerly with Here Be Dragons, who's been on the show, I think like episode 139. No, I, I did not absorb Kent Bai's superpowers to be able to name episodes. I just, I looked it up last night. So I think it's episode 139 where we had Justin on. Uh, Justin, of course, it was the creator of uh, the Legion FX SDCC thing in 2017 that also went to Faust. And... That would be enough to get us excited. But wait, there's more. Not only is this a um, first-person version of A Christmas Carol, so you probably know who you're, you're being turned into as part of this, but because it's a hybrid live and VR, that means that not only you're wearing the headset, but you're interacting with actors while you're wearing the headset, and the actors are manifesting... Uh, the characters. Um, now, you could get any old actors to do that. I mean, you, you could. You could. But Justin didn't. Oh, no. Haley Nichelle, uh, who's also been on the show, um, who has, was served a long time on both Sleep No More and Then She Fell. She's part of the team that originated the roles. Michael Bates of the Speakeasy Society. You, If you're doing the Kansas Collection, you know him as Jack Pumpkinhead. Uh, he's a uh, very important in this 
I don't want to say more than that, but he's part of the cast and originated the roles. And then because this is a longer run, they just expanded the cast, uh, the repertory cast now, and they've added a couple of more people from the Speakeasy Society. James Cowan, uh, who was also in Delusion the Blue Blade. Uh, you might have encountered him there playing a certain uh, helper character in the middle of the show. Don't want to spoil anything, but you probably know what I'm talking about. Of course, they're in repertory too, so maybe you got a different one. But nevertheless, James, who... Uh, you know, is uh, the the Tin Woodsman in Kansas Collection, just for those of you who, like, maybe don't know the actors' names. And then Genevieve Gearhart, uh, who's one of the artistic directors of the Speakeasy Society, and who is also Ozma, all hell Ozma, rightful ruler of Oz. Um, <laughs> you knew that was going to happen, right? The second I said the O word. Uh, so Genevieve is in repertory, uh, playing parts in this piece. So, and it's all taking place uh, at Great Co's new space. Great Co, of course, are the people who are producing Delusion this year. That's like a super group, right? That's like, I just, I just mad-libbed you a no-pro event, but it's real. And it's on the site right now. And there's a limited number of tickets, November 30th through December 9th. Go get them while you can. Hey. There's more. If you're in L.A. or you're going to be near L.A. on January 5th, come on down to Two-Pit Circus because, and this one's pretty cool, we're doing No Pro Live. That's right. The podcast is going live, No Pro Live, in front of a studio audience. It's going to be a show unlike any other show we've done so far. Different format, I suspect. (laughs) So busy, I haven't booked it yet. Um, so I can't tell you who's going to be on the show because I don't know, but I do know that myself and Anthony will be there. And then, and then, and this is all thanks to Josh Randall over at Two Bit Circus, by the way. Josh, he's programming immersive for them, uh, not just there, but I think, I think in the entire company. Um, Josh Randall, of course, who's you know the creator of Blackout. Um, <laughs> everything, man, it's just everything today. Um, we're doing the show live, and then after the show, we're rolling right into. The first Everything Immersive Los Angeles meetup of 2019. Also, technically the first Everything Immersive Los Angeles meetup because uh, we haven't done one of those branded EI yet. We've done no pro office hours in the past. So if you've been to no pro office hours in L.A. in the past, this is that, but better. Um, EI going to be there. So again, me and Anthony at the bare minimum and anyone else from EI who's in town, uh, we're hoping everybody can make it on down. We're going to have a place for a few hours to ourselves. Uh, looks like we've got Club 01 all to ourselves. Um, no cover charge. Uh, we're not charging any money on this one. So just come on down, check out the show. We're going to have some surprises for you. And then we get to just hang out and play video games if we want to, or just drink or just eat or just go into the VR cabanas. Like, well, I mean, you got to pay for that, but you know. We're going to have to run into place. Uh, who knows who's going to stop by. Definitely going to warn everybody. And not only is this like the first new pro live, but, you know, I got I to gotta frame this properly. It's going to be the fifth anniversary, the fifth birthday of no proscenium. We're sending the kid to kindergarten, folks. We get to do it. They're finally out of the house for like four hours a day. It's going to be amazing. But it's not just that. It's also the first anniversary of the Immersive Design Summit because it will have been a year since we did that in San Francisco. That's a pretty big weekend, and it's the first weekend of the year. We're kicking it off right. We're getting everybody together, and we're going to throw a party because that's how we do here at Everything Immersive.
and no proscenium. Speaking of the Immersive Design Summit, got some news for you there. I know this is going to be long, but there's a lot of cool stuff. And this episode is totally worth it. I'm glad we're doing all these announcements on this episode because it's going to be, everyone's going to be like, wow, they had a really busy time that time as we're listening to this archival piece. Um, IDS, Immersive Design Summit in San Francisco, February 22nd and 23rd. Applications are extending. Wait, what? We're extending the applications for a few reasons. One, we're still announcing programming. And we kind of were like, you know what? It's not right for us to keep on dropping really cool speakers and just tell everybody like, sorry, you didn't know because like we didn't tell you, but like eh, you're going to miss out, whatever. Uh, just this week, we dropped the team from Star Wars Galaxy Edge, uh, which is was like that was like one of our big drops. We had that for like a month and we're like, oh, we're going to save it at the end. And then we're like, wait a second. Wait, did we do that right? We probably didn't do that right. Um so there was that. Plus, we've got a whole plan that we're we're brewing on the participatory nature of the the events there, and we've got some names we're going to have for that really soon. We've also got some sponsor announcements that we get to make next week. There's just a whole bunch of information we're about to drop, and we said, you know what, we should extend for that. We're also making it clear how many uh, the the minimum threshold of partial scholarships that are available, something we haven't done yet. We've been working the math and we are proud to announce that we will have 50, that is a quarter of the available seats, 50 of the invitations will be at the partial scholarship rate. That partial scholarship is half off. So uh, we definitely ask people, you know, honor system here, you know, this is really for folks who just could not in any way, shape, or form afford to go to this thing. Not folks who would be like, oh, it'd be nice if I paid less. No, this is like, there's no way in hell I have $500, but I'm working my ass off in this space and I belong in the room. Those are the people that those 50 seats are for. Those are the folks that we're aiming it at, all right? So just, you know, the community, we hope the community, because everyone who pays full price, you're helping those people get in. So don't think of it as buying a ticket for yourself at full price. Think of it as buying a ticket for yourself and someone else. All right. Pay it forward. So we're going till the end of the month now. We will be able to make some invites before we close. That's sort of the compromise we're doing. We know there's a lot of folks, particularly returnees, who we have always said that we're giving um, we're giving preferential treatment to because you're the rock, the core of our community. We will be able to, after the Thanksgiving holiday, start rolling out invitations. Um, and we're gonna give people some time to get the invitation, get their stuff together, and then uh, accept, send it back, pay for it, et cetera, and then move on to the next batch. Um, we've got 200 seats this time. So uh, that's twice what we had last year. Also, there is always the chance, I'm saying chance, not saying certainty, there's always the chance that in the interim, particularly as we get the sponsorship stuff going, that we might be able to open up some more scholarships. We don't know yet for certain, but we might be able to if someone pops up and says, hey, I think this is great, I wanna back it. And again, we're not done announcing folks yet. In fact, one of the folks I really want to announce, we just don't have their headshot yet. So I'm going to lean on them to do that. And it might be someone whose work I've already talked about today. What, what, what? Okay. Um, small hints. Small hints. 
Look at everything we've got for you. Chained if you're in LA, No Pro Live at 2-Bit Circus in the beginning of January, got the Immersive Design Summit up in San Francisco coming up in February. This is enough. Uh, the show is now over. No, 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 no. I know we've been going. We've gone a long time, about 15 minutes now. Wow, this is long. I don't apologize because I want to tell you all these things. Really quick, we're going to do the Patreon, all right? Thank everyone who's been jumping on board. Uh, we are only $20 away from the goal that we hit before. <laughs> oh, God. Um, so we're getting really close, and we have more individual backers than we've ever had before. We're up to 208, and I love watching that number up. Almost more than I love watching the money go up, I love watching the number of backers go up because this is a community-funded effort. Even when we've got a sponsor that's pulling in more money, it's still a member of the community. It's always been a member of the community, even when it's a big thing. All right, here are the folks who jumped in to get us 20 shy of the milestone. Kevin Williams, John Napolitano, Napolitano, sorry, horrible person. Brendan Lutz upped his pledge. Everyone, if you want to do that, you can. I don't encourage everyone to do it because I like the five and the one dollar backings. Kendra Slack, David Thomas from Denver, who helped bring us out to Denver. Thank you, David. You didn't have to do this, but I am super glad you're going to be here. Rebecca Longworth and Isabella Tang. All of you, thank you so much. We're $20 away from the next milestone. We're chugging forward and we're going to get there and we're going to get beyond. This is the year that no pro goes pro by hook or by crook. Um, All right. That was a lot. The sustaining backers of No Persinium, of course, are Jan Budman, Lonnie Hansen, Ari Hurstan, Mark Balthazar, Sam Kinkin, and Ross Sigworth. This episode was recorded in the field at the Molecule Effect in Denver. And now, after much ado, our conversation with Amanda Rose. So now we'll do the the show part. Hi, Amanda Rez. Uh, hey, uh, we're in the Molecule Effect uh, on Santa Fe in Denver right now. And Amanda Rose and I met yesterday at the Denver Immersive Summit, where we were on the uh, consent and agency panel. And I, while you were talking, I, I got really interested uh, because you've done all this research around these issues of of consent and agency in different human interactions, but also as applies to theatrical endeavors, right? Yeah, I actually, so I started my research with a lot of uh, cognitive science and pedagogy because I figure that the classroom is the ultimate immersive theater experience. You have teachers that are crafting classroom settings and scripting what they're going to be doing throughout the day and trying to control it somewhat. Um, So I started with some pedagogy research and then I branched out from there into um, what's called narratology or linguistic narratology, which is the study of narratives and how they impact the way we think. And um, I have taken a lot of that research and as well as some cognitive science and some counseling techniques and brought that into my artistry and into my research um, in relation to theater and immersive theater. So talk to us a little bit about narratology, 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 narratology. 
I've only had three sips of this bulletproof coffee. Um, the molecule effect is not sponsoring the episode, but uh, it might as well be. Uh, so, so, what's that again? Narratology. So, linguistic narratology. Linguistic narratology. I'm gonna say. Okay. Yes, right. and that's the study of the way that we interact with stories in our lives, because constant exposure to different narratives, whether it's mythology, whether it's the religion that you're growing up with, which is really mythology in a sense, whether it's fairy tales, whether it's movies, whether it's media, whether it's the social narrative that's happening around you, that impacts the way that you form thoughts and it impacts the way that you interact with other people and it it impacts the way that you form your own sense of identity. So narrative is actually really powerful and a lot of people don't consider the fact that they develop personalities based on the narratives that they're exposed to. Good God, this is right up my alley. Um, so I'm not going to ask you to now analyze me based on the fact that I'm obsessed with Star Wars and Batman, but um, we can do that as later. Am I. Excellent. Uh, she said, as am I, because the microphone was not close enough. I'm using the oh, mobile sorry. mic. Guys. No, no, no. You don't have to apologize. I have to apologize. It's my show. I apologize. Um, so... Uh, <laughs> um, what... What, what does it mean? This, here's, here's the question. If someone knows that this, this effect is an effect, right? If you intellectually understand, oh, yes, I'm shaped by the stories around me. Um, does that at all impact the effect that the stories have? No. <laughs> we can't resist it. Because humans, the first thing we learn linguistically in our development as children is to synthesize complicated thoughts into words. So we learn to, it's called tagging. Um, So we learn to synthesize the concept of the comforting warmth, the sustenance, the love, the smile, the face into mommy, right? There's so many complex thoughts and we tag them with mommy so that we can simplify uh, what our brain is doing. So our brain doesn't have to process all those thoughts. It only processes mommy and then it can process all the other input around mommy as new information. So as we grow up, tagging evolves from something we do with one word into forming narratives. And this is so easy to illustrate. Like I see someone across the coffee bar from me and they give me a look and I instantly say that was a look. They don't like something about me. I create a narrative to help me understand the new information that I'm being given in my surroundings. We're constantly crafting narratives to help us process complex layered information and so we can't stop doing it even if we know that we're doing it cool um <laughs> and not a john oliver cool but a no actually cool um th- that might be a little tangent to, to where we're ultimately going to go but i wanted to i wanted to touch in on that simply because it feels like it's a it's a base layer for all these discussions this idea that we're we develop a model in our head, a story mm-hmm. based on the information that's brought to us. And when we're dealing with fictive situations where someone is trying to communicate an actual narrative to us, it kind of runs up against the narrative that's already in our head. Mm-hmm. And sometimes we get a, a mismatch there, um, which can lead to all sorts of issues. And I think all sorts of issues, particularly around consent, because mm-hmm. people can be, oh, they can observe a behavior, and particularly a behavior that's directed at them. And they will perceive it maybe not as it was intended, but that doesn't necessarily matter because what matters is what they're perceiving in the experience that they're having because mm-hmm. we're dealing with experiential arts. 
Yeah, and there's so much psychology behind that as well. Uh, John Dewey in the 1920s and 1930s was writing about the transformative experiential learning process. Is that like the Dewey Decimal System Dewey? I don't think so. Okay, okay. <laughs> Just the, I, I tagged Dewey to the Dewey Decimal System. So. It, it could be, um, but yeah, tagging there. Yeah. Um, so John Dewey was one of the first really recognized American educational theorists. And he wrote that humans learn through experience because we do. Um, and so instead of sitting and receiving information, we process information best when we are faced with an experience that engages us emotionally and challenges us, as well as connecting to our outside awareness of the world. So if I have that experience that challenges other narratives but connects to other narratives that I've been exposed to, then because I'm stuck in, um, Kevin Kumashiro calls this crisis, I'm in a crisis where the narratives that I've previously been exposed to are being challenged, but because it's emotionally engaging, I want to solve the problem instead of just saying, no, this narrative is not correct. Oh, this is fascinating. This actually reminds me, I had a, oh God, I will forget his name. So one of the guys are from Nation Builder and he was a cancer survivor and uh, he has a whole, he had a TED talk called The Internet is God and we had this long conversation because he had come out of uh, a fundamentalist evangelical tradition and I kind of asked him like, you know, like what, you know, what, what can bring, you know, what, what, what can bring people out of that if they're like, you know, completely locked in to that worldview and he was like, oh, nothing. But he himself had like had a, a crisis of faith because of the cancer and like the community didn't support him. Mm -hmm. um, but this idea that if the story, the new story you're confronted with is emotionally compelling enough, it hurls you into a moment where you try to resolve. Is that people will try to shift over into the new narrative or they try and find harmony? Like, is this, is this a binary or sort of a, a synthesis situation? <laughs> or is it, is it different with every person? It, it depends. Right. So, like the work that I'm currently doing with police officers, we go in and we recreate scenarios which are based on um, case studies that have been tactical encounters. And a tactical encounter is what the cops call it anytime someone gets injured. That has been a tactical encounter. Um, and we recreate these scenarios and police officers have to come in in the recreated scenario and engage in de-escalating. And what often happens is because they have had their weapons taken away and they are not allowed um, to physically engage with us, um, they're working through crisis in their head and they realize oh, I have to change the way I'm doing it. Mm. So if that desire for change comes from within the individual, then they're in crisis and they're trying to marry the new narrative that they're dealing with right now with their old narratives and sometimes they'll find a place of harmony in the middle and sometimes they'll say, you know what, I've had officers tell me, wow, talking to the person and solving their problem made it so much easier for me to do my job in this scenario. And I had an officer in Grand Junction tell me, um, I've been so focused on doing the mission and on doing what the call was for that I forgot that my mission should really be the person there. Um, and so that's something that if I had come in and I had said, hey, you guys are forgetting to interact with people as people, they would have been like, fuck you. You're an actor. You don't know me. <laughs> yeah. Being a cop is hard. Yeah. But when that 
impetus and that desire for change comes from within because they see the two narratives and they're trying to make them fit, then they want the change and they make that change happen. So people can change their perspectives, but only if that desire is actually coming from inside of themselves. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to segue off of the idea of people changing their perspe- perceptions and perspectives um, into something you said yesterday, which I thought was really critical for the designers who listen to the show here, which is was about sort of the ratio of negative experiences to good experiences in order to like, kind of rewrite someone's opinion of something they went through. So I wonder if you could like give us that. Um, oh gosh, do I remember what I said? It probably had to do with once somebody's had a truly negative experience, yes. the effective filter is raised. And the effective filter is what psychologists essentially have labeled the unwillingness to learn. Um, when it's triggered by an emotional response. So a negative experience raises the effective filter, and psychologists say that it takes between three and five, so I usually say four, positive interactions to lower the effective filter before you can get through to them again. Otherwise, that person is so focused on that negative experience and their feelings that they can't process any new information that you're giving them. So you have to build in positive interactions afterwards to earn that back, to earn their willingness to really listen to what you're trying to say. Otherwise, um, and I think this is something I said yesterday as well, your philosophy is outweighed by the spectacle of it. Um, And they're so caught up in the spectacle of what's happening that they can't take away the messaging. And that's when they walk out and they say, I was forced to do this and it was awful. Instead of saying, wow, I did this. And it made me think about things. Um, And we see this in video games, too. And I know you mentioned Halo yesterday. Um, And the kind of 15-second loop of a fun experience and creating that and honing in on that. But there's another philosophy as well. And this is kind of the philosophy that I think uh, Neil Druckmann operates under with, like, Uncharted and The Last of Us, where... The philosophy is sprinkled in throughout the gameplay, and there's these small details of dialogue that you can't skip past. Because how many people skip past the cutscenes and just go to the next piece of spectacle? I mean, I've, I've never been that guy, but... I haven't either, but there are a lot of them out tons, there. Tons, tons, tons. <laughs> to the point where they... And that's why we have Battle Royale and everything else now. Like They, just, they don't even bother with story. Yep. Um, But if you look at the most recent Uncharted game, there's this scene where you're climbing a cliff face and you're being forced to listen as a player to the character working through marital problems with their spouse. So what you're saying is that these games are actually just Neil Druckmann's uh, couples therapy? No. <laughs> I don't know. It's just interesting because you're being exposed to the possibility of discussing this. And his spouse is bringing up um, kind of reasons why he's not a very great person. And you're listening to that and you're reflecting on every single other character you've ever played. On your Master Chiefs, on, your, on all your other badass characters. Because this guy is a badass character. And he has been for four games. And Nathan Drake is a sociopath and kills hundreds of people and that's what those games are really about and they finally realized it after making three of them and now they're in this like dark spiral where they're like what have we been doing this entire time master chief is the pinnacle of human achievement and merely kills covenant it's never taken a human life (laughs) that is true 
But what Neil Druckmann has done to help us process that is he puts that dialogue into the gameplay so you can't skip past it. And people have such strong reactions to it. I've seen reaction videos where uh, some bro is sitting there going, oh, I'm so pissed. This is what happens when social justice warriors come in and create video games. <laughs> but if you think about it, Neil Druckmann wasn't saying anything political. He wasn't saying anything about social justice. Yeah, he was just he was just examining his own character, and he's particularly examining the the ludo narrative gap between uh, the the idea that that this guy is this Indiana Jones like character, and Indy Indy only ever punched Nazis and killed cultists, right? <laughs> so that's you know, okay. yeah, no, it's it's fine, you know, like he only he only kills people who've already dehumanized themselves. Like this is this this is. I mean, there, there's a whole level of psychology there. It's like, yeah. you know, what is, what is, when is it okay to do it, right? And that's, and those are kind of like, kind of like traditional, you know, you know, traditional liberal values of like when you cross the line of, of, of violence, right? When is, when is war justified, right? It's like, I mean, Bart Simpson summed it up best in the 90s. Like, there's only like three good wars, right? You know, like the American, four good wars, like the, Amer- the American Revolution, the Civil War, World War II. World War II and the Star Wars trilogy. And those are the only four good wars. Uh, and that was at the end of an episode where they did this whole war thing. Uh, I don't that one. It was it was really early. It was in it was when The Simpsons was actually fantastic in the first four years. Um, but th- this gap between who Nathan Drake presented as in all of the cutscenes and then what you as the player would have to do, which was just slaughter people left and right. And and Uncharted is particularly interesting because you know, in some ways, it is a ripoff of Tomb Raider. In the original Tomb Raider games, you never killed people; you just killed a lot of animals. Like, <laughs> you know, Lara Croft was like Peta's worst nightmare. In the current games, she does spend a lot of time like killing people. I guess in the latest one, kind of a very in the same move. There's a lot of like e- examination of of you know whether or not she's like an awful person because she's out there raiding tombs and like she's now the villain. And there's this whole wave in video games right now of like, no, really, we've been the villains all along. And I think there's a lot of those, those bro gamers who are like, oh, but you're, you've been telling me to do this. Like, you've been telling me to shoot all these people. And, like, now you're telling me I'm bad for shooting these people? And it's like, you know, the entire game industry has just become, you know, the ending of Bioshock. You know, would you kindly uh, slaughter everyone around you, please? Um, like, okay. Like, there's – because – and this is pertinent to our discussion – these are the only tools you give people mm-hmm. to use. If you hand someone, I remember ten years ago listening to the guys on the One Up Show um, talk about, you know, if if the only mechanic is shooting, like, of course you're going to get these results, right? There aren't other mechanics, and your work with police officers, if if they have the weapons, mm-hmm. they're going to solve the problem a certain way, and you take the weapons away, and now oh, we got to solve it a different way. And this is pertinent to what we're talking about because if you put participants in a theater piece in and you, and you give them a degree of agency, but you only give them certain tools, yeah. they're going to behave in certain ways. Yeah, that's exactly what we're looking at right now. And that's what's happening in a lot of places is players, for a lack of, or to stick with our analogy, uh, players come into the space not really knowing the rules and assuming that the only option is what you tell them they can do. So what do the buttons do? And you're not telling me what I can't do or what I can choose not to do. So the, the sense is I have to do what you're telling me I can do. If all I've got is the X button, then all I'm going to do is jump. And I'm going to figure out a way to get through the game with just jumping. Um, and part of that is throughout so much of our lives we're conditioned 
um, to be docile bodies and to follow a specific uh, set of socio-normative behaviors, whether that's in classrooms or in the workplace. And a lot of players, we have players who come into our spaces knowing the rules of the game and eager to engage and eager to challenge themselves and to challenge us as creators, and that's amazing. But we also have to be aware of the people who don't know the rules of the game. And video games, there's always a tutorial to teach you what you can do. Um... And I think that a lot of the times we don't set up that tutorial. We don't set up, you can consent or not consent to do this, and here's how. Or when people are uncomfortable, we don't read that very well because we're like, okay, we're pushing their discomfort, and that's awesome because if we're pushing their discomfort, they're going to think about what's happening. Um, But what a lot of us don't realize is that in that moment of discomfort, the effective filter could be being raised to where the only thing they walk away with is, wow, that was uncomfortable, it was awful, instead of thinking, why was I uncomfortable? Mm. And so if we have a way to sprinkle that philosophy and the dialogue and the processing into it, I mean, even those guys on YouTube who are going, social justice warriors, I hate that they made me think about this. They're thinking about it. They're not just saying it was a shit game. They're not saying it was poorly designed. They're not saying there were awful game mechanics and there was nothing to do. They're they're saying, like, all this thinking's getting in the way of this amazing game I was playing. And and sooner or later, we hope, the light bulb goes on. Yeah, and that frustration, a lot of the times, is coming from the fact that their narratives are being challenged. They're having a categorical crisis. I have this category of the male hero in video games who does this and acts like this and looks like this. And then when Ellie asks Joel, so how many innocent people have you killed? And he says, "Uh, let's not talk about that right now in The Last of Us. That makes me think, holy crap, how many other heroes have I played as? How many other heroes have I had in real life who have really just devastated people around them? And that crisis, that moment of crisis in challenging the narratives that I've consumed my whole life is difficult. But if we can work through it, and Kevin Kumashiro talks about this, about crisis, emotional crisis as being the best teacher. Because as human beings, we we ruminate in things. We, we think about them until we solve the problem. I mean, that's how we invented hammers, right? Like, we had a problem, and we kept thinking about it and trying things and failing and trying something else until we solved the problem. And so our brains are wired to do that. So those guys are going to sit there and ruminate and think about it until they can figure out how to fit the narratives together somehow. And it might be months after they have the experience. It might be the next day. But at least they're thinking. And because they're thinking live on the internet, as so many people do now, right? The internet's mm-hmm. this constant first draft of history. You get this echo chamber effect where, particularly the people who haven't had the crisis experience, are reinforcing the old narratives and actually complicating, complicating people's own personal growth trajectory. Yeah, that's definitely um, that's definitely a part of it. Uh, which is why it's so difficult for us to craft narratives that get people to think in productive ways. And there's a lot of people who acknowledge the difficulty of this, and nobody really has an answer right now. I think a lot of people are experimenting. Um, 
with different techniques because our practice is our research in this field. What we do formulates what we do next based on the results that we get. And I think that's that something that as long as we as creators keep that question in the forefront of our minds, like how can we help create experiences that push deeper thought instead of just randomly happen and move on, um, I think that that's where our field can really build on what we're doing and really contribute to other fields as well. I mean, it's the thing that probably excites me the most about immersive as a practice in this aspect is the ability to create space for people to emotionally challenge themselves or find themselves challenged and then go forth. Like when I was in high school and I became obsessed with Campbell and the Illusion Mysteries and all of that, I thought that what was missing from our culture was was a mystery. Uh, experience was an initiatory experience, and a, and a well-crafted immersive gives people an initiatory experience. And there's there's two pathways out of initiatory experience. One is to then bind you to the culture, the the cult even that has presented the mystery, um, or it wakes you up. It's the the kind of the, the magician path, and like sets you off onto by giving you these tools to go forth and explore and, and, and create reality on your own. And, and not in a not in a necessarily metaphysical way, but in the sense of like you have this perceptual tool set where you then are able to like you know break things down and rebuild them and like you know alter alter your circumstances uh, you know more not, not at will but more or less at will based on the insight that these systems are at play and you now have a tool set by which you can interact with the world in a, in a different way than you did before. Uh, you're, you're seeing more, you're, you're both seeing more and you've resolved the crisis of seeing more. Because I look at what happens in our culture and I look at people when, when we're confronted with someone else's inner emotional state and it sets off something inside of ourselves, either, either guilt or, or a, a, a common resonance, and we, we, we reject it because it's, it's too much, right? It's extra. And it makes so much sense for us to retreat, right? Because we're often dealing with a ton of stuff. And I know that I get to capacity all the time. Like, someone brings me something, you know, after a week of nonstop, you know, crises, and I'm just like, I, I literally can't right now. And at a certain point, I might even snap at someone. It's just like, you know, no. Like, it's been it's been nine days straight, and I, I not one more thing. I can't deal with your emotions right now. I'm sorry. You know? Um, and that's normal like we can't death if you if you leave yourself open and like all you do is like you know be there for everybody else all the time you will die uh you'll be you'll be drained out all all the nutrients will be sapped from your body you have to recharge um and we're just not nothing in the, the hundreds of years of our culture uh through industrialization has prepared us to go back into this place where we're all intimately involved in each other's lives in kind of a tribal way. Like, it's, it's an earlier way of existing. But this domain we have in immersive starts to show us some of that again. Like, what it means to exist in that way in these interrelated emotional states. Um, how... How does 
I don't want to just say the blunt question version of it, which is, you know, you know, what are some of the best practices around establishing ideals of consent or establishing rules of consent in a space? But I think ultimately that is one of the things I want to drive at here uh, is what do we know from the from the research from the cognitive sciences around how to establish that those those boundaries for people? Like, what does it what does it take? So the difficulty here is if you just ask someone, can I touch your shoulder? There's pressure in the question for them to say yes. Or especially if we word it as, you're okay with it if I touch your shoulder, right? Like that's the worst. Um, So a lot of people are experimenting with this idea of nonverbal and training our actors and our audiences to give nonverbal consent. Um, and there's a lot of different warm-ups and techniques around this. Um, Chelsea Pace just wrote a brilliant dissertation on this. Um, and there's, oh gosh, how to say this verbally. I'm so used to, like, <laughs> leading workshops where it's like, here's how we can do this. Um, it's, it's tough, but really what we have to do as designers of these spaces and as creators is ensure that our actors understand why and how important it is, not only for the audience's sake, but for their own sake as well. And practicing engaging in e- with each other in ways where they are and are not giving consent builds up just through transference of knowledge and embodied practice we build up an ability to read each other and to read consent which is something that we've been trained out of Um, psychologically we've been uh, Foucault calls it the panopticon where we've been segmented into our individual spaces and there's the constant pressure that somebody could be watching and could be monitoring so we behave in specific patterns just in case we're being monitored. Mm. Um, And a lot of the research right now is saying that doing physical exercises and physical techniques helps people get out of that cranial space of, oh, I'm being watched and, oh, I'm being monitored and I have to respond a specific way and helps them engage with their own feelings. so that, oh, I'm uncomfortable and I can show that I'm uncomfortable and training readers or training our actors to read that as well is really, really important. Um, Do we we maybe need, and I'm thinking about the way LARPs do it, right? Because in LARPs, the the performers and the participants are one and the same with like, you know, there'll be a few, you know, guild characters or whatever the hell they're calling it these days. Um, but mostly everyone, the interactions is, everyone's on the same level of power and mm-hmm. then it's like it's two players playing with each other. Uh, and they do extensive workshopping before like a mm-hmm. weekend long LARP. Should, should we be, I mean, it, it, it feels like it's an impractical thing to expect your audience to come pre-workshopped to an immersive theater piece because they only have limited amounts of agency. But is this what we're talking about when we're talking about tutorials? Or would it, would it help us when it comes to establishing sort of, you know, higher difficulty level experiences that people, you know, come, you know, sort of prepared, like prepared, like mm-hmm. literally prepared by doing these kinds of workshops. That's so difficult to do, but it would be a great idea. Um, we have so many 
I mean, especially our early audiences. Our earlier audiences usually know what we're doing in this community. They know what we're about, and they're there because they are into it. But then after word kind of gets out, people start coming just because, oh, I heard about this cool thing, and I want to be significant, and I want to be able to show that I was there because it's an experience, and it's a limited experience, and I want to be able to show that I've had that experience. And so later on, it gets more difficult, I think, in most of our runs because we get those people who really don't know the community. And you mentioned LARPing, but also in the kink communities. Like, there's trainings that you go through at some houses where if you're going to be in here, you need to know that these are the kidneys and you can't strike this area because that's dangerous. And you need to know how to give and take consent at all times. And in those communities, consent is something that you always have, not something that once you've given, you can never rescind. Um, and I think that our community could learn a lot from LARPing and from kink communities in the ways that they handle that, especially because what we do is so related. And and this just blows my mind, like kink communities oftentimes do these things to set up consensual spaces and to set up safety, but they are so regulated legally that if someone finds out that you attend kink communities, your job could be at stake. You could face legal consequences. Uh, Child Protective Services could be sent to check you out because I don't know why, but because that's the way our society is. Because you're a pervert in the eyes of the law. But if we, our communities, can learn to create structures similarly to that community, then we can also be allies for that community. Um, and say, look, a lot of this stuff is rehearsed and a lot of this stuff is performed a specific way and we could be better um, prepared to stand up for the people in the kink community um, who oftentimes consider what they call performance or play. Yeah. Well, and, 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 and there's, I mean, there's deep ties in a lot of ways. One, there's a lot of people, I mean, there's a lot of people in the LARP community and a lot of people in the kink community who are also members of the immersive community mm-hmm. and vice versa. That's a, that's a real thing. And in the eyes of the law, like, I remember in Los Angeles being told by the DCA, you know, which is Department of Cultural Affairs, uh, you straight up, like, hey, look, the, the, the permitting people and the vice squad people, they just think of you guys as sex parties. They don't see any difference. They assume that you're going to this house and you're playing games with each other. It falls under that rubric. And, you know, there's a, there's, there's a big part of me that's just like, why does anyone care what consulting adults do behind closed doors so long as they're consenting like adults? Like, that's what we call it, consenting adults, right? We've lost that phrase as we fight over the idea of consent uh, in America right now. We've lost the concept of consenting adults and forgot that that was a perfectly good thing. It means, like, hey, if you two want to do whatever, who am I to say? Like, that's your life. That's American individualism at its finest. It's like, <laughs> who you're putting in your body is the core of America. And it seems like the community that has the best understanding of that is the community that our social narrative says is the least capable of actually having the ability to give consent to do it because they're so policed yeah. in what they're doing, which is just absurd to me. Um, but you're right, it, it is, it's American individualism at its core, and the kink community is nailing it, which is so weird because I'm sure... Phrasing! That, <laughs> I'm sure that many of them would hate to hear me say, like, oh, you're being the ideal American citizen right now. Um, but 
I feel like there's so much that these parallel art forms, parallel behaviors, parallel communities can learn from each other. Yeah, we 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 had uh, a, a kink positive. Well, not even kink positive. We had we had a like a, a, a sex therapist and couples therapist whose practice is, you know. Uh, geared for members in the kink community on and, and that was the first time we had like a consent uh, a serious consent discussion on, on the show and one of her points uh, Liz Powell one of her points was uh, as we looked at things like safe words it was the idea of affirmative consent was sort of where the kink community was at at this point where it's not it's not just about you know locking out and opting out but about affirming and, and something I was thinking yesterday when I was roaming the halls of, of the Denver Summit it struck me. I think it was after our panel. Um, it was. It was right after our panel. Uh, you know, safe words, for instance, they only really work if people feel comfortable using them, if people trust that the, the environment they're in is going to be responsive. And, and that's, I think, is a huge thing. Like, whether or not the work that people is creating, if the, if the participants, if the audience knows that the work space is responsive to what what their desires, what they want, uh, and finding ways to establish that trust. Like, that goes beyond even the idea of consent, but are you illustrating clearly uh, to the participants that they are co-creators of their experience? Even if you're not telling them. Even if you're telling them that, like, you're ours now, right? Like, once you enter our halls, you're ours, right? Well, in a kink community, when, when Adam is saying, like, you walk through those doors in your mind, the sub knows that they have the ultimate power, right? That they have the, the click out. And that is that is the game. And maybe for the sub, that ultimate power is full surrender. Like, that's all they really want. And they trust in the fact that they can just switch off and go into subspace fully uh, because they know they're, they're taken care of. And or they're scared that they're not taken care of, and that's what they really want. Um, and how a show, and, and, and even like a mild show, how a show can signal to folks just this idea of, hey, we're listening, we're responding to you. You, you, you are important. You, you, you mentioned a term, you said uh, significant, mm-hmm. that people want to know they're significant. I wonder if you could talk to that a little bit, because that was something that came up. Yeah, so... And this goes back to what you were saying about returning to a previous way of life where we're interconnected because we've been removed from that for so long that now we're at a place where we're searching for personal significance. And that could be me posting a photo of this coffee and saying I was at this specific coffee shop and I'm significant. It could be me buying Nikes because they signed Kaepernick. It could be... You had, a, you had a great point about Nike being like whether they're buying or burning them. Yeah. Do that, do that bit. Do that bit. I want to hear that joke. So, yeah, Nike is marketing significance right now. Uh, they signed Kaepernick and their stocks skyrocketed the next day because people saw the messaging and said, I need to show that I, uh, that I have that. Uh, mindset so that I can be significant to my community that also shares that mindset. And then there was this other group of people who started filming themselves burning $100 worth of shoes and shorts and sweatbands or whatever so that they could show, look, I'm against that mindset. So I'm significant because I'm standing for my community. And 
we see it also in people who um, call the cops on people of color who aren't doing anything. Why are they calling the cops? Because that, they think that that makes them significant to their community. Like, oh, I reported this thing, and that means I'm protecting my community. Meanwhile, the person filming them is like, I'm filming this son of a bitch. I'm significant because I'm going to make that person face consequences. Then that per- the, the employer of the person who called the police is in a point of choosing which side they are going to have significance with. Are they going to fire that person to show to the community that doesn't want... Um, oh, shit, what's the word? Um to signal to the community that doesn't like people being racist, essentially. Um, (laughs) They're signifying significance with that community, the anti-racist community, or are they going to do nothing and signify to the racist community, look, we're with you, and be significant in that way. Like, we're constantly searching for significance. So then when people come into our spaces and we give them choices and we give them roles they're constantly weighing on themselves like what's going to be more significant to the show to my experience to other people's experience and there's a lot of pressure to behave in a way that's going to be the most significant yeah that's interesting because there's i mean we we won't get into the details but like one of the things that i found fascinating yesterday a a part of a story that was told that i didn't know a story i heard before was like at the end of a sequence where someone had like resisted some of the narratives and that had like altered their experience that when they got to the end the rest of the audience was angry with them Mm -hmm. for having resisted and and said like you ruined it for us even though um you know our understanding of it now is like no that was all also that was always a possibility in the plan Mm -hmm. there's no ruining it it's just different but this idea that you know it's not just a binary choice or or thinking about the other people who are there and that aspect of performative but also thinking about the way um, in LARPing it's you know, either playing to lose or playing for drama where you're you're not just playing for the old min-max power trip of, of role-playing games, but it matured into you're trying to make it as interesting as possible for everyone around you, and that's the spirit within which people enter into those spaces. Um, yeah, I... I'm fascinated. I'm also, I'm also fascinated. Even, even when you were talking about, because uh, Barbecue Becky is the nickname of the lady in Oakland uh, who did that call. And there's and, so many Barbecue Beckys now. There's so many of them. Oh, yeah. And 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 I think about, you know, how, even, like, the choice of the employer. Like, when you go up that, that extra level, like, there's so many things at stake, right? Because there's, there's maybe what they're bound by the law to do in terms of what their employees do in off times. There's, there's the idea of whether or not they're going to say, like, hey, what someone does outside of, you know, isn't. Or does it, you know, does her job actually, like, reflect, you know, is there any impact there if you have someone who's got those, those tendencies or is a racist, uh, you know, in a position like she is? And, and maybe most significantly, is there no path for redemption, right? Like, how do we get... Is there any chance... This goes back to... Uh, Jim Galligan, I think was his name. But the thing, the conversation with the guy who's like the internet's god is like, you know, how how do we provide a path out for people who are married to a narrative, married to a way that that doesn't grapple in a healthy way with the reality of a pluralistic planet? Mm-hmm. 
which is sort of the way I'm thinking about these days, right? Like, we could talk about America as a pluralistic society and, like, the, the strife we're going through right now because we're, we're not grappling with that properly. But I, I've started to, like, jump up to the next level of, of domain and, and look at the planet. Like, we're a pluralistic planet by definition. And the crises we're facing uh, are geopolitical and, 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 and climate change, and they must be addressed on a global scale or we're fucked, right? Like, we just, we just are as a species. Like, we're facing species-level crises right now. And everyone who's denying it, uh, please go look at what happens in California, what's happening in my city as I record this. Like, like you know, this is not normal by any... It's a new normal, but it's not normal compared to what we were like when we were kids. And we... If we don't grapple with the fact that we're a pluralistic planet, then we're not going to solve our collective problems. And what I always, for me, and I try not to be too political on the show, but for me, the crisis I see in America is that, or no, not crisis, the opportunity I see in America, the thing that we're grappling with right now is that America is headed towards being a pluralistic nation and the most pluralistic nation on the face of the planet. Mm-hmm. So if we can thread the needle here, we can, again, even though it's not our time anymore to lead, we can lead again by showing folks what it means to take all these you know, diverse points of view, take all these different narratives, all these different ways of life uh, in the ways that they strife and, and find a way to make it stronger by finding ways to navigate not necessarily making everybody happy all the time, but finding ways to live together in spite of ourselves, which could then be translated to the rest of the planet, which if it's a process that if we don't do, I think we're screwed. And what I see in the microcosm with what we're doing in the immersive spaces is finding not the verbal language, but the visceral language mm-hmm. and the social contracts that let us navigate those kinds of relationships. And it's not something that happens in every show, and it's not something that anyone's gotten right yet, but at least we're having the fucking dialogue, right? And that's where it starts, right? Mm-hmm. You know, Nobody in this space has the answer, but at least we're asking the questions some of the time. Yeah, and that's, that's what our art does so well, and it's what I think, what I think that only our art can do is we put these people in places where they're faced with an embodied experience of crisis, where they're faced with a new narrative and a new world that questions the narrative of the world that they live in. And then because they're there and because they want to have a good experience, because that's why they're there, they want to be good. They want to do good. Uh, we're also concerned with doing the good thing, the right thing. And in that place where they're exposed to an environment in which they are free to experiment and to try new things, instead of being faced with my narrative versus your narrative, they're kind of being mad scientists and experiencing the new world that's created for them in a way where they can choose to take from the other narrative certain things or where their actions are leading them to question their own narrative. And just getting people to question the narrative that they are immersed in and grown up with and that that has really permeated their embodied experience of the world 
if you can create an in-person physical crisis where something's not sitting well, maybe in the stomach of the person because it conflicts with their own narratives, that's something they will leave that space questioning and that desire to question the narratives that they've been brought up with will lead to more openness to dialogue. Whereas if I just came up to somebody and tried to dialogue with them right off the streets without them having a visceral experience of discomfort with their own narratives, they wouldn't engage with me. Or they'd engage with me, we'd get angry, and then we'd walk away and forget about it. But having that embodied transference of knowledge in the space where you are physically situated with the necessity to question, that goes out with us. We can't just say, fuck you and walk away because it's in our body, it's in our experience, and we're, pro- we're going to process it until we build that hammer. Is it the responsibility of the production to provide the after space, uh, or in the kink community terms, like the aftercare, or, or maybe and, is that too much of an opportunity to then flip it into kind of like a cult-like indoctrination where you've traumatized someone and then you bring them in and it's like, no, look, this community is safe and comforting. We're going to like, you know, cool you down and make you feel like a warm, loving part of the family, a tactic which can then, you know, be weaponized. So I wonder if you could like speak to that part of, of the process. And if a show, and some shows like to like kick people out on the street afterwards, like, here's your crisis, congratulations, welcome back to Los Angeles, like, bye. Um, you know, is there a responsibility there? Or, or is there more like there's a responsibility to at least point in a direction of like, hey, if you need to like go talk to this about some folks, like, here's, here's, the, here's the 12-step program. <laughs> I think having that after space where you're sitting there and saying, okay, here was our messaging. Here's what we want you to walk away with. Everything's wonderful is really dangerous. That's when we walk the line of becoming hell houses. Um, Oh, I know. Yeah. Yeah. Everyone who listens to the show knows what a hell house is. Uh, We have a huge one down in Colorado Springs um, here in Colorado. Um, And I think that's where we walk that line and we don't want to be in that line because number one, if we have that conversation where here's how you should be thinking about this, we will have people who are already our choir and we're preaching at them. And then we will have people who shut down everything they thought in that experience because we're lecturing them and because our narrative isn't their narrative. I think, I think based on my research and based on what I've read and experienced and in talking to other people in their experiences, what would be great is if we could find a way to leave them with the questions as they walk out the door. Remind them of the questions, maybe, but not try to give them our own answers because then we're manipulating them instead of letting them think and grow of their own accord. I like that idea of reminding them of the questions, right? Like, I really, really like that idea. Um, I'm also thinking just like in terms of, you know, just maybe the, the less neutral didactic, but but just the cool down area, providing that space. Because some folks, some folks in LA have tried to do that. Sometimes it feels forced and weird and awkward. It's like, hi, well, you're still in our space. Feel free to talk about our show. We'll just be in the other room. Just feel free to talk about our show. We'll be in the other room. Um, that feels weird. Uh, and like, well, I'm not going to do that. I, I have a personal rule that I developed back in my my high school theater days where mm-hmm. like 
I don't comment on the show in the house. Like if we're still in, if we're still in the the theater, I was like, no, I'm not, I'm not even in the lobby. I gotta walk out. I walk outside, you know, for multiple reasons. Maybe some of the show hears me, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Like there's a place. It's like this is, but for me, that's the establishment of the magic circle. If I'm in the theater, that is their space. My space to you know praise or complain is mm-hmm. is outside their their space. I'm not gonna profane it with that. Um, but but does it still? Because it doesn't have to be the the, the didactic, is having like a, a, a producer provided cool down space at all? Um, is is that is that still rolling in that danger zone, or is it kind of more along the lines of like, well, there is a bar attached to the show, and that's where people are going to like do what people do. Yeah, I think if you're offering a space for people who want it to use it, that's great. Um, if you think about going to a conference, most of your best conversations and the most invigorating learning that you'll do at a conference isn't actually in the workshops, it's at the water cooler afterwards, or it's out at the bar or at the coffee shop where you're just chatting with that person that you met who you would like to talk to more. So I think if we offer that water cooler space for people to talk, then that's awesome. But I feel like a lot of a lot of the experiences I've had are like, here's the space to talk, but we're also just standing here watching you talk. <laughs> yeah. And then... Please like our show. Please like our show. Please like our show. Please like our show. Say whatever you want. Please like our show. Yeah. And I think that that makes a lot of pressure so that people can't process what they just saw. And I think offering a space for them to process with each other is amazing. But we need to find a way to do that that's actually open for them to do that instead of just saying that it's open for them to do that. Like, you can come get drinks and talk about the show, but all of our actors are now serving you the drinks and staring at you. (laughs) (laughs) Which I've seen happen. And nobody talks about the show because they're constrained. And I think if we can offer that in a way where... Maybe maybe it comes down to formulating a few questions for actors to ask if they're in that space, but not having not feeding the conversation and not monitoring it. It's a difficult thing to do, and I this is one of those things that we're experimenting with. And if anybody finds out something that really works, let me know. <laughs> All right, that, a call to action is always a great place to end the show. Amanda Rose, thank you so much. I'm so glad we get to have this conversation. This is, this is fantastic. Thank you for having me. And I'm always interested in what you're doing. I read, I read what you write. Um, and I think this is something that we're all struggling through, the consent question especially, and how to, ha- how to do what we're really aiming to do instead of just sort of half-assing it. And it's something we have to stay in communication about as a community. How, speaking of staying in communication, uh, if people want to see you writing your work or connect with you in any way, how would people connect with you? Um, <laughs> you don't. You don't have to. You don't have to give your email out right now. If they, you don't have a ready-made way, like that's fine. You, I don't want to put you on the spot here. But just in case there is a way that people can kind of <laughs> passively follow along with what you're doing. Yeah. Um, right now, I don't have a website because I'm working on a PhD and paying to do the work that I do. Um, so my website is down currently, but I am on Twitter at Amanda Rosie Pie. And I'm on Facebook, and um, I'm also on LinkedIn, and I can give you my email, and you can tag it later if you would like. Fantastic. We'll, t- we'll tag the Twitter. That's probably the best way. I always see okay. the public. All right. Well, uh, just run for another coffee and then the mic off and maybe more talking. <laughs> okay.
once again want to thank our guest Amanda Rose Villarreal for being on the show today, uh, recorded on uh, a snow day. Uh, first time I drove in the snow. I survived, uh, obviously. Or did I? Maybe I'm uh, maybe I'm a ghost. Uh, I'm the ghost in the machine. No, it was great. Uh, it was it was interesting. Um, uh, I did I did almost spin out at one point, but I survived. Um, Speaking of Denver, uh, Denver Immersive Summit. Uh, one, Denver's awesome. Uh, you can you can see uh, there's got a bunch of videos from Casa Bonita. Not all of them saved out, unfortunately, because you know, Instagram's weird. But I got like two of the three videos we shot for Instagram Live. Uh, we're gonna I'm gonna scroll that away in like a blog post uh, that I've been meaning to write all week, but I've been too busy to write because hi, it's me. Um, that's number one. Number two, we do have the keynote speech that I gave and the setup that Lonnie Hanson did. Uh, for that keynote speech. And thank you, Lonnie, for setting so much of this up. Lonnie, uh, David Thomas, and Jenny Filippetti uh, all worked their butts off to put this together uh, along with the committee that they had. Uh, and I'm just super thankful. It was just, it was a great time and uh, people seemed to like what we did. We're going to take the audio from the keynote uh, and uh, maybe maybe the full extended, we might also break it down. We're going to put that up on the Patreon. Uh, it's going to be a timed exclusive on the Irregular. So that'll hit before Thanksgiving, and then uh, at some point after Thanksgiving, we'll just kind of open it up to the world for, for archival purposes. But I want to give everyone uh, who who's backs the show kind of first crack at um, – seeing what it is we got up to. Plus, you know, it's just 40 minutes of me talking. And then there'll probably be some section of it where it's a Q&A, and so like you kind of won't hear the question, and then I just start declaiming. I don't know. I haven't listened to the audio all the way yet because I lived it, and I don't like to listen to myself. Um, someone's going, I don't like to listen to you either. Well, um, but you're here, so I know. Maybe examine that. Um, yeah. The beginning of the show is really long. Um, I don't apologize because there's so much exciting stuff and I didn't want you to miss any of it. That's the thing, right? Like, I just want you to know what's happening that we're super excited about. And don't worry, there's going to be stuff that we're super excited about happening in New York and in other places as the team builds out and gets up to doing even more fun all over the place. Okay. That's it. That's enough. That's enough for now. Uh, other other duties, other missions call us into the great wide world. Let us do the thing that we need to do. First off, uh, again, thank you to the Johnny Carson Center for Emerging Media Arts for helping to sponsor the show this month, along with our glorious Patreon backers. The sustaining backers are Jan Budman, Lonnie Hansen, Ari Hurston. Mark Balthazar, Sam Kinkin, and Ross Sigworth, my rocks, the rocks upon which I built this church. Um, that means you all get chapters in the no pro button. No, um, whew, I'm going to get in trouble with God. I'm already in trouble with God. The past few months are evidence of that. Um, <laughs> probably. The music for No Persinium is by Chris Porter of the Speakeasy Society. Perhaps the only member of the Speakeasy Society not working on change. No, not true. Uh, there are others. There's a lot of members of the Speakeasy Society. Um, somehow they came out negative. I didn't want it to be negative. I love Chris. I really do. I owe Chris like an episode to himself, right? Like, I don't think Matt, you know, what is it? We got to do this. We got to figure this out. So like, we've had like the core of the Speakeasy Society on together. When we've had Genevieve and Julianne on together. I don't think we've had Matt on solo. I know we haven't had Chris on solo. We've had Julianne on solo, and we haven't had John Henningsen of Thymeli on solo. 
so guess what we're doing in 2019? <laughs> There's going to be a lot of speakeasy society people. And Michael Bates. Uh, we should have Michael Bates on. Maybe we'll have Michael Bates on for Chained. That seems appropriate. All right. The music, I think I mentioned, is by Chris Porter of the Speakeasy Society. Uh, contact us at nopersinium.com. You can find everything if you check out the About, and uh, or if you find us on Facebook or Twitter, where we're both at No Persinium. The Instagram, which is totally fascinating these days, at no underscore persinium. Seriously, follow it. The stories are fantastic. The team is just, just slaying everything. Uh, everything in Slay gets slayed. Uh, and of course, the Patreon. If you want us to keep on doing this, and I know you do, patreon.com slash no persinium. We only ask for a dollar a month. If everyone who listened to the show gave us a buck, uh, we'd be doing pretty good. If everyone gave us five bucks, we would get to stop begging Think about that one. Think about that one. I don't like it either. <laughs> you better watch yourself. I've got the death sentence in 12 systems. Anyway, um, there was your requisite, uh, requisite Star Wars. I can't speak. I'm leaving now. Until next time, I'll see you at the show. 